God, we worship you this morning. Truly, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. We think about the birds even outside in their singing and how you provide for them what they need every single day. We think about the sun rising and its warmth filling the earth and causing the plants to grow and giving us light to do our day by. And we just worship you for these things, these subtle testimonies to your faithfulness day in and day out and day in and day out. And of course, Lord, even in our lives through the good times and the bad times, we can look and say, great is your faithfulness and all that you've given us and provided for us. And Lord, one of those things is your word, the the testimony of truth where you've revealed to us who you are, the God that we cannot see making himself known in Christ, in the flesh, and in the word, scripture. We praise you for those things. And so Lord, bless us today, enlighten us, open our eyes, draw us deeper into truth, grow our hearts, knit them together with yours, we pray through this time together. Amen. Uh, I would love for you to be in Revelation chapter 3 with me. Like I mentioned, this is the last Sunday uh, that we're going to be going through this series on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Next week, we're going to start a series leading up to Easter, can you believe it, on the passion of Christ and, and what his suffering has meant for us and what it has accomplished for us. And so I look forward to that. Um, let me read Revelation 3. I'm going to start in verse 14, the letter to uh, the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, to kind of summarize where I'm going this morning, our time together, and to kind of give you an idea uh, so you can envision this as we go along this journey together. This letter to the church in Laodicea presents for us two problems, two remedies, and then a blessing or a promise. But before I get into that, I want to just spend a minute looking at this introduction where we see Jesus introduce himself here in verse 14. He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And with these words, Jesus is echoing the idea that he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. I've I've said week after week that the opening verses of these letters refer back to chapter 1. And we find this term in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is the source of all things, and through him all creation has come into being. 
Amen is a word that we place at the end of our prayers. And really all amen means is truly or let it be so. And it comes as a conclusion, just as Christ has come as the conclusion of God's revelation. He is the amen. He is the last word. And Jesus claims here in chapter 3, verse 14, to be the beginning of God's creation. This doesn't mean that Jesus was created, okay? If you talk with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, they'll use verses like this to say that Jesus was the first thing that God made. They misunderstand these verses. That's not at all what the Bible teaches us. When the Bible says that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, it means that through Christ, everything that is, was made. It means that he is the word of God through whom God spoke all things into existence at the beginning of time. But there's a second meaning for those of us who believe in Christ as Lord when he talks about being the beginning of creation. And that is the fact that those of us who are in Christ, we have our origin, our new life in him. He's the beginning of God's new creation, as we find in Colossians chapter 1. He's the first to rise from the dead, the one through whom all of us who believe will ultimately be raised as well to eternal life in the life to come. He's the beginning of the born again. All that is being made new has its origins in Christ. And then we find, so so we've got amen and we've got beginning. So we've got the beginning and the end. And then we have the words faithful and true. And they help us understand that Christ occupies everything in between as well. He is in all of the spaces from the beginning to the end and everything between. Truth, that word, is unchanging. It's constant. What is true on Tuesday is true on Friday. And what was true a thousand years ago will be true a thousand years from now. And since Christ is called the true one, we see that God in his faithfulness is unwavering in his love and his support for those who are called by his name yesterday, today, and forever. And so this is quite a title that Jesus claims here at the beginning of this letter to the church in Laodicea. I think it should capture our attention. It should enliven our hearts, encourage us. He's the author of creation. He's the author of life, the beginning and the end. He's the constant truth, the resurrection, and the new creation. We have hope that is placed in him as he is these things. One final thought here that I think is so cool. If you read from the ESV translation like I do, the translation that we find here is, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That word beginning has a delicious little double meaning that I want to kind of make you aware of. The word in Greek is arche, arche. And not only does arche mean beginning, but arche means ruler. And so if you look at verse 14, you could read it like this. Christ Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Just as much as he is the beginning and the source of it all, he rules over it. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because I'm going to kind of revisit that towards the end a little bit later. So Christ not only makes creation, but he rules over it every moment of every day in every circumstance. He is Lord. All right, so now let's get into the problems that I see here, okay? Remember, I said the church in Laodicea, this letter presents us with two problems, two solutions, and then a blessing or a promise. The first problem is found in verses 
15 through 16. And there's kind of this funky thing that we see in the Bible a lot of times. And I've maybe used this word before. It's a chiasm where the first thing relates to the last thing. The second thing relates to the third thing. So you have like a one, two, two, one structure. So verses 15, 16 correspond to a solution in 19. We'll get to that in a minute. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, again, we see this phrase, I know your works. Uh, We spent our morning together, I think it was two weeks ago, talking about the meaning of that opening, the significance of that phrase. It is repeated again and again in these letters. But in summary, Jesus uses these words to the different churches to evaluate their spiritual health. He's saying to them, when I assess the value of your spiritual health, where you are spiritually, I look at your works. Jesus believes that he can evaluate the vitality of the church by examining the works, the fruit of the Spirit that reveal on the outside what is taking place in the heart on the inside. And in this case, as he looks at the works of the church in Laodicea, what he sees is that they're suffering from a severe case of apathy. They are neither hot nor cold. They are nauseatingly tepid. I like to go backpacking. When I go backpacking, I use a camelback. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these. It's just this big rubbery bladder that you can stuff in a backpack. And it's got this hose. And I can store it in the insulated part of my backpacking backpack. And what's great is when I find a creek or a pond, I can fill that bladder up with water that I filter from the cool stream and stuff it in an insulated part of my backpack. And it'll stay cool for a long time as I hike. And there's this hose that comes from the backpack and and attaches to the straps of my pack. And so anytime I need to, I can just take a sip without having to stop and open up a water bottle. And especially in Arizona, it's easy for me to stay hydrated that way. But what happens is that as I'm hiking and the sun is shining, the water that is in this hose that stays there between sips and is refreshingly cold when I first get it from the stream, over time becomes lukewarm as it sits in that hose. And so I've learned after doing quite a bit of backpacking that the first couple of sips that I draw from that, I have to spit them out because they're just disgusting. They're not hot like a cup of coffee that's refreshing. They're not cold like the stream was when I first came across it. They're just repulsive because they're lukewarm. They're tepid. And what Jesus is saying here is that apathy in his bride, apathy in the church, repulses Christ. And please understand, I want you to see here, both hot and cold are actually good things. They're positives here. Jesus is not saying to the church, man, I wish that you were passionate and hot or just like super cold so that, uh, you know, I can see that you're in opposition to me. What he is saying is that when we drink, we like the extremes of either a warm drink or a cold drink. He wants us to be passionate. He's saying their hearts are lukewarm and apathetic. And what he wants for them is to have an extreme position in their love for him. What I find really fascinating here is if you 
you probably don't read these kinds of things because it's not your area of expertise, but I, I like to read statistics about churches and the health of the church, especially in America. And what's fascinating is the most steadily growing churches and denominations in America today are those churches and those denominations who hold what our godless culture would call an extreme view of Christianity. The churches and the denominations that are the most rapidly declining, whose doors are closing, and who are slowly shrinking into extinction, are the churches that have chosen to compromise and to surrender to the cultural norms of pluralism and relativism. And so the more apathetic a church becomes towards the things of God, things like biblical inerrancy, the truth of God's word, things like salvation by Christ alone, or a biblical understanding of human sexuality, or expectations for Christians to live lives of holiness in pursuit of Christ, the more apathetic a church becomes on those things, fascinatingly, the smaller the church becomes, the faster it dies. Contrary to much popular thought, the message that we keep hearing is, if you want to be relevant in today's culture, then your church has to be willing to compromise. You have to capitulate to what the culture expects and what it wants. But in fact, those churches die. While the extreme churches that show their passionate love for Christ steadily grow. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, but really, why should we be surprised by that at all? It is Christ who builds the church. And as a church becomes worldly, as a church becomes apathetic, as its passion for Christ fizzles out, Jesus tells us he'll spit them out. They are no longer tasteful to him. Of course they die because Jesus stops being for them. He removes his Holy Spirit. He judges them for their lack of love and passion and commitment to them for their apathy. He rejects them as a result of their compromising. And so as we consider, I think, this first problem here, we need to ask ourselves, do we hear this warning? I mean, do you hear this warning? I think each of us individually need to evaluate the state of our heart. Are we drifting towards apathy? Are we lukewarm? Or are we growing in our passion and our love for Christ? And may it never be that God chooses to spit Maricopa Springs out of his mouth for becoming a church that's rife with apathy and for lack of passion. For a church that refuses to be extreme in its obedience to Christ and its love of his word and his commitment to him being glorified in our lives in holiness. Now look at verse 17. We find our second problem, which corresponds to its solution in 18. I just want to keep pointing that out, but I'll get there in a minute. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Maybe you've heard this saying, perception is reality. I tend to sort of agree with that, but not in this case. Problem number two here is that this church doesn't see things the way that they really are. And isn't that true of all of us in general quite often? Here's a church that thinks that it's in a very sure place. It has a great sense of assurance. 
It's very comfortable. It's relaxed, which has a usual byproduct of apathy, do you see? It's a church that's rich and it's prosperous so that the people think that they don't need anything. And yet Jesus says perception is far from reality. Because in truth, this church, it's wretched. It's pitiable. It's poor. It's blind. It's naked. This is a church that's far too easily pleased with their trinkets, so proud and arrogant that they can't even see their own desperate condition that they're really in. Now, as I thought about this verse this week and this problem, I I began to wonder, I wonder if Jesus is, is talking about the material state of this church in Laodicea, or is he talking about the spiritual state? I mean, when Laodicea finds its assurance in believing that it's rich and it's in need of nothing, does that mean that it's it's rich in natural, material terms? Is this about money? Or are these people spiritually arrogant, even as they are drowning in apathy, thinking that by themselves they're good, they carry the name Christian, they have all of the religious trappings that go with it, and so therefore they then must be pleasing spiritually in the eyes of God. And I thought that it would be important to answer that question, but as I reflected on it more and more, I I realized it doesn't matter that much, does it? Whether the assessment of their pride, their self-sufficiency is material in nature or spiritual, What is undeniable is that Jesus is making them painfully aware of their shortcomings in the spiritual realm when he calls them wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is a spiritual statement of their condition. And I can easily see the modern American church in this indictment. The truth is, guys, we are so richly blessed. I mean, I've, I've been privileged to go to Bolivia and go to church in Bolivia and Sudan and Pakistan and the Dominican Republic and India and a number of different places. And let me tell you, we are incredibly blessed here in the church in America. We're blessed to just have something as simple as a steady job. We're blessed to have houses that we can make mortgage payments on, a public school building that we can rent. I mean... It's easy for us to go, man, I wish we had a church building that was ours. But we are blessed to have a building and not be meeting under a tree. We are blessed that we have Bibles in our language that we can keep in our house and read freely anytime we choose to do so. We are wealthy and comfortable. We're well supplied and we are pleasantly content. And those are great things, but do you realize that all of those things are potential ingredients for a recipe of apathy? And I wonder if all of that was taken away, what would the American church look like? I mean, if June rolled around and I told you we couldn't be in this building anymore and we are going to have to meet under a tree at 10 o'clock in the morning when it's 105 degrees, would you go to church? If because of our association to Jesus, we lost our homes, we lost our jobs, we were forced to hide our Bibles or be punished for having them. If we couldn't meet in a space like this and we had to gather secretly in homes in the middle of the night, which I've had to do in Pakistan, sneak into a home under the cover of darkness to talk about Scripture. If in order for us to actually survive and make it a day, a day or a week or a month, 
that meant that we really had to do life together as a church. And, and it might mean that somebody sitting here would have to live in your extra bedroom. Or somebody sitting here would actually have to bring food to you or you wouldn't have it. How big would the church actually be if the price for being associated to Christ looked like that? Maybe I'm overly skeptical. I, I want to be a man of grace. But I think that if the hammer really fell on the church in America and we had to suffer for the sake of Jesus, I think probably at least 50% of the people wearing the name Christ would disappear. They would bail out. Because it's difficult for us to see our own desperate condition before God. We think that we are rich and we need nothing, but in fact, just like Laodicea, we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And understand, this isn't just an American church thing, okay? This is just a human thing. This is a human condition. We are far too easily pleased. And we have a tendency to settle for Christianity when we should be pursuing Christ. But I want you to see that our God is so gracious. He's so loving. He's so tender. He may chide us. He may rebuke us. He may call us out and challenge us. But it's always for the sake of refining us and for drawing us deeper into his heart. His warnings and his rebukes are the very essence of love because he longs for us to be whole and to be right in the presence of God, not left to our own devices, but rather enveloped and enfolded in his grace. And so we find solutions offered by Jesus as he speaks to the church in Laodicea. The first solution, I think, is verse 18. He says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Christ Jesus longs for us to come to him so that he might open our eyes to the eternal nature of our souls. And the solution to our spiritual poverty cannot be found in this material world, do you see? We have to come to Christ. We have to let him teach us to look beyond the immediate gratification of the desires of our flesh. And only he can heal our wretched, bankrupt state. This verse, verse 18, it makes me think of Isaiah 55. Last week we explored some of the real intimate connection between the book of Revelation and Isaiah. I just want you to listen to this connection here. Let me read verse 18 and then a selection of Isaiah 55. Just listen. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then in Isaiah we find this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live 
and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here's an invitation to you to trade up, to get the better end of the deal. We give up our false sense of security, which we've idolatrously placed in the systems of this world. Things like money and comfort, security, prestige and honor, success and our achievements. We trade those things. And in surrendering those things to Jesus, we receive from him that which is good, which satisfies our souls entirely. We receive gold refined by fire true wealth, and true riches in Christ. White robes of righteousness to hide the shame of our nakedness. A treasure hidden in a field that far surpasses the worth of everything that we could have gained or earned or achieved in this world. And see, if one of the problems that we talked about is a false sense of assurance in the things of this world, a willingness to settle for so little when we're being offered so much, The solution then is to come, even in our bankrupt and our wretched state, to come to Christ all day, every day, and receive from Him the riches of God Himself. Food that He gives us that satisfies, even though we can't possibly afford to pay for it. Food that is pure and incorruptible. Christ, His body and His blood. A sure and certain word that proceeds from the mouth of God and is certain to sustain us in every season and accomplish all that God has intended for it to accomplish. And so what reason could you possibly give me? What reason could I possibly give for not taking God up on this invitation? There's a Christian recording artist named Derek Webb and in one of his songs he has this great line. He just says, I am so easily satisfied by the call of lovers so less wild. And the truth is that Christ is the greatest lover of our souls, wild and fierce in his passion for us. And yet we seek to be satisfied in lesser things. When he offers to us all the riches of his kingdom with no price to pay whatsoever, only our lives in surrender to him. And so if one of our problems is verse 17, that we build our assurance on the things of this world, the corresponding solution in verse 18 is to put on robes of righteousness and to find joy in the eternal assurance that Christ offers us. Now the second solution is verse 19. And I think it corresponds with the first problem we talked about, verse 15. Jesus says in 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. We solve our apathy by renewing our zeal and falling down in repentance. 
But first, I want to point out to you, if God has disciplined you, or maybe he is disciplining you, then I actually want to tell you, rejoice. Uh, Jim mentioned Bob, who has come to our church from time to time. He was bucked off his horse, broke his neck, was paralyzed. And at one point, Bob said to me, I'm sure that God is disciplining me. And I said to him, I'm sorry. And he said to me, I'm not. Because he understands that when God disciplines us, it is for our good and so rejoice. From our perspective, it's hard. It's painful. It's so much like suffering. But from from God's eternal perspective, this is an expression of his love. And so we should be comforted by that. He desires to keep us from self-destruction. And so he disciplines us to save us from being consumed by sin. And yet, even though I would tell you if you're being disciplined, rejoice, I would much prefer that you and I both could avoid discipline, right? Because I think it's possible by stoking the fires of our passion for God, by continuing in repentance and coming to Him in a a life lived in repentance, constantly claiming the grace of God over our lives, in our identity as His children, that in that kind of daily repentance and pursuit of his presence in our lives, that we can actually refrain from experiencing his discipline. And brothers and sisters, I would much prefer that for you. But if we persist in our apathy, if we persist in sin, if our hearts are not repentant, then we shouldn't be surprised when Christ comes to us in loving, gracious discipline to renew our hearts and to bring us home, even if it is tough when it happens. How good is our God, my friends? How good is our God that he chases down the wayward sheep and he disciplines the wayward child? The alternative would be that he cuts us loose, that he removes his love from us, he lets us go. But the fact of the matter is, for the born-again Christian who has the Spirit of God alive in their hearts, the blessing and the promise is that God will not And he cannot let us go. He may chastise, he may rebuke, he may even discipline us out of love for us. But he cannot abandon us entirely. And this is where we come to the blessing or the promise. Look at verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I think I said a couple of months ago, I I used this, this passage, something along the lines that verse 21 must be one of the most mind blowing statements made in the New Testament. Just take verse 21 this week, like write that on a note card. Five or six of them and tape them around your house and your car and your cubicle at work. And you could easily dwell on that statement for the next week and not be exhausted by the mystery and the wonder of it. But since I talked about that before and conquering even a couple of weeks ago, I want to zoom in on this promise that we find in verse 20. I said, God cannot abandon us entirely. God will not abandon us entirely. You know, some people think there are God, God can do anything. 
Well, in fact, there are some things that he cannot do. He cannot violate his character, his nature. And so for one who has heard the voice of Christ, who's opened the door to his knocking, our existence is a fundamentally changed thing, which is why our works are actually so important because we do those works in fellowship with Christ. There is no sacred and secular. Do you understand when you go to work, you are going to worship in the presence of Christ. When you come to church, you are going to worship in the presence of Christ. When you share a meal with your neighbor, you are doing so in the presence of Christ. When you drive down the street, you do it to the glory of God. There is no secular and sacred. Rather, your whole life now is lived out in the presence of Christ Jesus. And as a Christian, whatever you do, you're doing it all now for the glory of God in his name. This is a thought that should humble us so deeply. So deeply. I think it should even cause us to weep for our apathy. I mean, I'm a pastor. It's easy for me to get caught up in thinking that my life is so pleasing to God. And yet if every moment is supposed to be worshipped to Him, how far short have I fallen? How apathetic can my heart be for my sin? This should cause us to weep for the fact that even we as Christians, we often find our assurance, our peace, our hope in something other than the table fellowship with Christ that we have with Him even here and even now. And you understand that even though indeed you are naked, poor, blind, and wretched, Christ, for His own joy, for His own glory, has prepared a seat for you at His table. Remember back in verse 14 when I pointed out that the word beginning in Greek also means ruler. I think this ties in here because Christ wants to come into our lives and be the ruler. Look and see the state of the heart of the Christian in verses 20 and 21. Christ, who is our beginning, our creator, but also the one who has raised us from the dead and given us a new beginning, he now becomes the one who is the authoritative one in the house, the ruler, the ruler of our hearts. And he invites us to table fellowship in his presence, and he will not cast us out once the door has been opened. Because he conquers and because he rules, we sit at the table of the king. And you need to understand, for his own sake, then, he will not throw us out. For his own sake, he will not abandon us. For his own sake, he will not leave. For his own sake, he will lead us to the end because our hearts have been knit together with his. We are clothed in his robes. We have heard his voice and opened the door. And someday, when all of this reaches its full and final conclusion, then he will invite us to sit with him in glory, to rule with him over all of creation. And again, what I think you have to understand here, what I I just really need you to get, is that this blessing and this promise is not built on you. God will be faithful for God's sake. If God were faithful for your sake, then when you failed, his faithfulness would dry up. Which means it'd be over before today was over. 
And this is why all of these promises, all of our assurances rest on Christ the ruler, Christ the conqueror, because then they are certain, then they are sure, and for the sake of his name, he will not let us go. Listen to this verse, 1 Samuel 12. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So why has he done so much good to us? Why has he remained faithful when we have not? Why does he discipline us? Why does he reprove us when we become apathetic? Why does he bless us so richly? Well, for his own sake, for his own honor, for his own name, the faithful one, the true one, so that that name will be his name forever into eternity. Let me just close with kind of a summarizing thought over all of the letters to the seven churches and a few verses from Lamentations, okay? As, as I've been going through this, I, I've come to see what, what I think could be maybe an overarching theme as we look at all of these letters. And the overarching theme is not ultimately the faithfulness of the people of God. It's not the faithfulness of the church. It's the faithfulness of God. Even at the end of the story, as God encourages his people in the final chapters of Scripture, we can't avoid the fact that his own children are rather pathetic at pursuing God with zeal and with passion. We easily fall into apathy. And Jesus tells us in these letters again and again how important it is to pursue him with repentance and with passion. And yet we find again and again that Christ still loves his bride. He loves the church. He loves those whose hearts have his name written on them. And so he bears them up. He carries this work on to completion in spite of us, not because of us. And how encouraging is that? And for the sake of his great name, he will remain in fellowship with us until the day that he brings us home to glory. Listen to these words from Lamentation 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Let me pray. Lord, would you test our hearts? Would you help us to examine our ways? Would you lead us to repentance? God, if we have in any way lived lives of apathy, Lord, would you bring us to our knees in repentance, regret, true sorrow, and forgiveness? And Lord, would you light a fire again in our hearts that burns for you? an unquenchable fire with a light that far outshines any other passion or desire that we may have. And God, we thank you that even when that 
ember ebbs and fades and the light grows dim, that You are a faithful God. That You will not abandon us. You will not cast us out. And for the sake of Your own name, You will be faithful to the end. We worship You for Your faithfulness to the churches. The churches in Laodicea and Philadelphia. The churches in Sardis and Smyrna. And Lord, the church here in Maricopa. We just worship You that You are the God who sustains us. We pray, Lord, that You would draw us deeper into passionate love for You. Keep us from apathy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.